Something strange happened this morning. I uh, must have left the recycle bin, the big blue recycle bin in the wrong place in the garage because when I, I, I left to come to church this morning, I opened the garage door and backed the car out, pushed the button to close the garage door, and the garage door mostly closed until it got to the big blue bin. And it stopped. And it tried and it tried and it tried very hard, but it wouldn't go any further. So I said, oh, the bin's in the way. I can. So I pushed the, the button to open the garage door again so that I could then move the bin and we could close the garage door and it would be wonderful. Well, because the door had pushed against the bin, that caused something else to bend out of place so that now when I opened the garage door again, it didn't stop when it was fully opened. Once it's fully opened, it just kept opening until it ran into something else and smashed itself up a little bit further. And that led to when I uh, uh, cracking the glass in the window of the garage door, which I didn't know about. So then when I closed the door again, now I had a shower of broken glass. It was a delightful morning, wasn't it? <laughs> Just your run-of-the-mill of stuff like that's going to happen. It's probably going to happen on your way to church. Yeah, let me just warn you in advance. But one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another. Uh, things have corollaries or, or, or consequences or, or things lead to things. That's true and sometimes that's bad news. But sometimes, sometimes that's good news. Sometimes in the midst of bad news, that's good news and that's Peter's news for us today. Peter's writing to a group of Christians, probably in Rome, at a time when most of the news they saw most of the news feeds they received on their smartphones were bad news and not good news. There was a, a godlessness in the age that sometimes de, um, um, uh, showed itself as, as brutal and violent in and, and the crime around them and the wars and rumors of wars. At times it was an infectious immorality in the culture that enslaved and ruined people and spread from one to another. It spread from one generation to the next and seemed to only increase as time went on. This was the era that Peter was writing in. It was a, what you would consider a godless era. And it was godless not because there weren't any gods, there weren't any belief in God or gods. There were belief in all kinds of gods. But the way that people lived certainly did not reflect any accountability to a God whom they were truly answerable to. The godlessness is not merely your chosen a kind of disobedience. Godlessness is not always brutal and violent. Sometimes godlessness is, is very sweet and encouraging and uh, sort of uh, cotton candy fluffy-ish. Let me give you an example of a different kind of godlessness that's also happening in our age. This, this comes from, um, um, uh, I was just reading a blog by a guy. He said he came into Starbucks and there he was confronted with Oprah. Well, not face to face, but on his coffee cup. There was this great little uh, truism, little saying from Oprah to brighten his day. And it bugged the snot out of him. And then he thought, well, I'm, a, I'm an editor I edit stuff. That's what I do. This, this isn't completely off. It's just twisted a little bit. I could edit it and get the thing back on track. And so he edited some of the, uh, some of the coffee cup warmers from, um, from Starbucks and Oprah. Let's look at the first one. 
The only courage you ever need is the courage to live life the way you want to. You see, you're the God. You're in charge. That's courage, says Oprah. Change that to the courage you need is the courage to sacrifice the life you want. To sacrifice the life you want. And there's an echo of Christ there, you see. The one who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Let's look at another one. Editing Oprah. That's the the theme of the morning. Your life is big. Keep reaching. Your life is small. Keep serving. Another one. Nice encouraging. Be more splendid. Be more extraordinary. Use every moment to fill yourself up. I don't know, from my vantage point, I I, I mean here in in you, but I think folks can sometimes be a little too filled up with themselves. I don't think that's, that's really the need. Maybe it's more to be more humble, to be more ordinary, to use moments to empty yourself. And there again are echoes of Philippians chapter 2, where Christ, who, who, though he was equal with God, he, he didn't consider his divine prerogative something to, to hold on to. But he emptied himself and became a servant. Sometimes the opposition, the godlessness of the age, presents itself as man and human ideals as the highest authority. And sometimes those human ideals and uh, um, imaginations collide with God's absolutes. That happened in, in Houston this last week. I don't know how many of you uh, uh, saw the political dust-up that happened in Houston when uh, a new ordinance was passed by the city council, and the new ordinance basically allowed any, uh, anybody to use any public restroom that they so were inclined to use. If a man, and this was the thrust of the ordinance, if a man identified himself as a woman, he thought, I, I, kinda like, I feel like I'm a woman, really, in a man's body. Well, he was then free to use the ladies' room in any public place instead of the men's room. And that concerned some people. In fact, uh, they needed 17,000 um, people to sign initiatives to put it on a ballot for the people to vote rather than the city council to just impose this. And they, in, in the 30 days that they had, they actually received 50,000 initiatives signed, or 50,000 signatures on initiatives instead of the 17 they needed. And so it was all, it was, there was an overwhelming backlash to this. And... Uh, uh, understandably, some of the churches in Houston were also involved in this and were outspoken about what they felt was right in society, according to God's word. And well, that, that didn't sit well with the council, and, and there's been legal tangling since. But one of the outcomes of that this last week was pastors must have spoken to their churches. They got these signatures because pastors spoke to their churches about this. Pastors must have talked about uh, something about homosexuality or this ordinance or the mayor. So we're going to subpoena the pastor's sermons. We're going to subpoena any emails or letters that the pastors may have written to their congregations, anything that touches on these topics. And folks, that's huge. Uh, in, in American jurisprudence, in, in the American legal practice, one of the things that has been sacrosanct and protected uh, to a large degree from the political correctness of our day is what I as a pastor from God word, God's Word would tell you as followers of Jesus Christ. We're allowed to do that. That's, the, that's not only a freedom of speech, but it's also the free practice of our faith that's been promised to us, something our, our, our country was built on, something we cherish around the world. 
And that was openly threatened this last week. There's a lot of backlash about it. It made big news because it was so unique and such a stretch, such a big step forward. But to me, to me it was illustrative of the, uh, the, the godlessness of the day and agendas that are not just being preferred but actively pursued that are contrary to the will of God. They are godless not just because they are contrary to God's will. They are godless because they push forward as if God does not even exist. They push forward without any reference to God. And if we continue to be pushed as a people by our own passions, it only leads to, to, to ruin. Let's go to the last Oprah cup. Follow your passion. It will lead you to your purpose. Your passion, twisted in the human brokenness and the fallenness of the human condition, our own passions and desires will entice us to destruction, will entice us to ruin. That's the kind of the age in which we live in. That's the kind of age in which Peter is writing this epistle of Second Peter. Well, like the song we sang, what can I say? What, what should I do? Well, there's all kinds of calls to action in response to this. There's all kinds of calls to, to reform our society. And it's understandable that those calls would go out. But what's interesting to me is that's actually not what Peter calls people to. That's not what Peter calls followers of Christ to. In the midst of that godless age, he does call us to something in particular but what it is may surprise you. Now, now, before we get there, before we unpack that very carefully, I want to give you an overview, an overview of Second Peter. And that won't take long because it's a pretty short letter. It's three chapters. These are Peter's last words. Second Peter is kind of like Second Timothy. Second Timothy is Paul's last words to Timothy about how to lead and carry on ministry in a church for the sake of a church in a godless society. Second Peter is written to you. If, if, if Second Timothy was written to me, Second Peter is written to you. This is for you in, in days like this. I'm not saying Peter was looking down the corridor of time and saw us, but he was looking down the road to Rome and he saw people a lot like you, living in a world very much like ours in many ways. Uh, uh, the people of God in a godless age. That's what Peter is writing to. So let me do a quick run-through of the book as a whole. He, he begins uh, basing what he has to say on God's provision and God's promise. God's provision and promise in salvation. Look at chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. And yet we have escaped, and we have escaped by the promise and the provision and the power of God. And, he, and it's, not, it's not a one-time thing. It's, it's, it's carrying on in the midst of this world that God has given us the power of the enabling of His Spirit to be different in the midst of that rather than carried along by it. Peter reminds them, verse 12 then, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. We're going to talk about the qualities that he reminds them. But because of God's promise, Peter is writing to remind them of something. Because God's promise is true, look at verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not a story. It's not a fable. It's not a, I wish it was going to be like this. It's not something we choose to believe in because we wish that that could be true. This is real. This is absolute. He says, it was confirmed to us there on the mountain. We saw Jesus transfigured before our eyes. We saw already him in his coming glory. And so we have the prophetic word, the promise of God made all the more sure. We saw a first glimpse of it. We are eyewitnesses, and so that's why we tell this to you. These are not cleverly divine myths, devised myths or fables that just manipulate people to believe. But many will mislead people. Chapter 2, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. These are false teachings within the circle of the church. And I'm reminded again of my note that was on the screen, Houston, we've got a problem. There's some of that there in Houston as well, one of the largest churches in the country promoting some of the worst heresy in the country because it's soft heresy. It, 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 it draws in and it draws people away, enticing them after their own desires, and Christians are caught up in this foolishness. Peter warns against it. There will be false teachers who will lead others into sin. And look at the sin that he describes here. Uh, verse 5, He did not spare the ancient world, but God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, when, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them examples of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous or ungodly under punishment until the day of judgment. There is a day of judgment coming. And, and Peter, to his own day, compares his own day to the days of Noah, to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, it's like that now, and we have the record. God didn't tolerate it then. He won't tolerate it now. There will be a day of reckoning coming. Don't let people mislead you to lead you on into pursuing your own passions to their own fulfillment when that fulfillment might be destructive. Watch out, because there is a day of reckoning coming. Don't let false teachers teach you otherwise. Peter doesn't call, so in verse 18 and 19 of that chapter, because, because the, the, those, those passions can be enslaving and defying. Look at verse 18. For speaking loud boasts of folly, these false teachers entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who barely escape from those who live in error. So they're, they're believers, followers of Christ, are being enticed back into following their own passions, their own desires. Feels good. Do it. I remember the Christian song. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. Oh, a lot of stuff that feels good to me that I want to be right is very wrong. It's very wrong, and I must guard my soul against it. I must exercise self-control and draw a line for myself, a line that's based on God's Word and not my own feeling. Not my own desires and, and hungers. They'll, they'll entice me. They will draw me away. And look what it says here in verse 18. Enticed by the passions of the flesh, those who barely escape from those who are in error, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 
And yet Christ has set us free, not to be enslaved again in a yoke of bondage, either to the law or to sin and its pleasures for a season. Now God has set us free that we might live how we were created to live, that we might live in relationship and in fellowship and fulfillment with him rather than on anything else. So be wary of that enticement that will lead to enslavement, he says again in chapter 3. This then is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. I'm reminding you how you should walk in the midst of this kind of an age. What is it that we should do? That's the thrust of Second Peter. I'm reminding you because there will be some who are denying the Lord, who are denying that he's really coming, denying his kingdom, but... The Lord is coming. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away at the roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that were done in it will be exposed, laid open, accountable to God. Even the ungodly who lived as if there were no God will be accountable. Philippians chapter 2 says that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is an accountability. So Peter says, in light of that, I, I, I want to remind you of something. I want to remind you of something. The same thing that he wanted to remind them of in chapter 1, he, he, he reminds again that I'm reminding you in chapter 3, the end of the book. And what is that if we, if we push all the way to the end? Verse 18 of chapter 3. Oh, verse 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But instead, rather, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Oh, we look for that glory in the future, right? But Peter says there is a way for the people of God, there are the ways of those who follow Jesus Christ to bring him glory, to glorify our God in the midst of this now godless and evil age. What does that look like? How do we do that? That's actually how he opens his epistle. He opens this letter describing very specifically the next steps you and I can do, should do, must do in the midst of an age that was like Peter's age, an age where people would live as if there is no God. People would live as if there is no moral absolute. There is no absolute truth because there's no source of it. But God is God. He will rule over this rebellious planet. But by his spirit, he already rules over the hearts of those who belong to him. And he urges us then, in light of that, in light of God's promise, in light of God's rescue, in light of his provisions for us, that we take next steps. So turn back to the front of the book then. Book of Second Peter, chapter 1, and I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Okay, The first 11 verses of, of the book of Second Peter. Beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, a like precious faith, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he is granted to us precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
and with virtue knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and elections sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to point out a couple of things, but there's a list there I want to get to. I, 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 you know, I, I've, given, I've spoken about lists in the past, but there's something about this one I want to show you. But before we get there, there's three preliminaries I should point out. Three preliminaries that are worth noticing. First of all, those qualities, those virtues that we're going to talk about that Peter lists in a very specific and intentional order, those virtues are founded upon a particular foundation. These are based on God's provision and promise in salvation. These are based on what God has done, what, what he has promised, that promise of the enabling of his spirit that indwells, that Peter was a part of on the day of Pentecost when the, when the Holy Spirit came, the spirit that Jesus promised has been with you and will be in you. He says, exceeding great, even better promises are given unto us We've been made partakers of the divine nature. And so Peter agrees with Paul who says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. God is at work in you. And he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. And so everything that we would step into in this passage, each next step that I would take, is founded upon the promise of God's working. That God has rescued us. God has called us out. God has given us escape from the corruption that is in the world. It's based upon our salvation that is in Christ Jesus. It's based upon what God has done for us, first of all. On the basis of that promise, in, in chapter 5, or, or rather verse 5, the first part of the verse, he says, for this reason, because of God's promise, because of the way of escape that you have been given, because of the enablement by the Spirit of God in you, because of the new life, because of that, he says, for this very reason, make every effort. Make every effort. Because of this, make every effort. What does that sound like to you? That sounds like marching orders. That sounds like, that, that's not passive, is it? That's not, well, you know, wait around and see what God does. You know, here I am, God, you know, do something. No, he says, no, 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 don't sit there, don't wait. No, no, it, it, it's time to move forward. It's time to be intentional. It's time to make a decision to stir the heart, to take a stand, to move forward, to be very intentional. I am going to get up. You know, Julie's been away this weekend. There was football on. Okay, the Texas Aggies weren't really playing. The end final score was 59 to nothing and not in their favor. So that wasn't good football. But there was football on. And I could have easily spent the weekend there. But I had to be intentional. There's stuff to do. There's things that I said, no, Julie, I'm going to do this and that while you're away. I'm going to make some progress. I'm going to be intentional. I'm going to take some steps. Well, now you can add the garage door to that list. <laughs> but, and there's some accountability to me, isn't there? 
Julie's not home now, but she's coming. Now, Julie's not Jesus in my life. Don't get me wrong. But it's, I hope it's a practical analogy that shows that I could either sit on the couch and tease the cat and eat snacks and watch football, or I could watch a little football and then get disgusted in the game and go do something that mattered, something that I really ought to be doing, right? But that took intentionality on my part, not just waiting around and waiting for the job to drift my way because that isn't going to happen. He, he says, make every effort. Roll up your sleeves. Get intentional. Make a decision. We have got work to do. Intentionality. It, it, this is organic in that it's not a force put on, but it grows out of. We, we, he says, make every effort to supply in your faith virtue. There's a, a odd construction here that doesn't translate easy into Eng- easily into English, and so various versions read it different ways, but the thrust of it, that odd Greek construction, is that in the midst of the first thing on the list, add the second. A- intentionally, there's the intention, make every effort to, in your faith, in your believing, add virtue or goodness, doing what's right. And in your doing what's right, this is where the, the um, this is why I put a stair step on the image that I'm using this week. The image to remind you of Second Peter and the overall thrust here is that one builds on the next. This list is very intentional. Not all lists are, are intentionally fine ordered. Some lists in the Bible are just collections. Like the lists of the Spirit in different places, uh, they are collections that serve an immediate purpose in that context, but none of them are complete. Because each list of spiritual gifts in the Bible has different gifts included, right? But this list, Peter is very intentional in that he is saying, in your, in your faith, add goodness. In your goodness, add knowledge. In your knowledge, supply self-control. And in your self-control, supply or add to that perseverance. Now, this supplying is an abundant provision. It's making every provision for. It was used, it's, it's a word we get choreographed from. Choreographed to, to, uh, to direct a, a, a dance routine. Well, in the, in the theater days, this word was used for the producer of the, of, the, of the program who would not only give the directions in terms of how the program would not only supply the scripts, would not only have the overall plot line, would not only direct the music, but would also supply all that was needed for that to happen. Even to the point of food for the staff, for the talent, in order to put on the production. So it was an abundant supply that was provided in order for this to happen. He said, make every effort to supply in your faith goodness. Now let me try to make this, this, this step, as you see at these stepping stones. Now let me, let me try to make some sense out of the order briefly for you. Goodness is moral virtue. It's doing what right. Believing in God rather than Godlessness. Believing in God tells me there's an initial implication there that God has, I have accountability to God. If God is God, I have accountability to Him. There is something about right and wrong here that I step into. With knowledge of God my Savior, Jesus tells the woman that He, who's about to be stoned for adultery, He tells her, go and sin no more. And from that, from, from that day on, she was perfect, right? Probably not. 
There was probably ongoing growth. And, and you know what it happens? You, you think you've got things pretty well. I, I've, I've, God has shown me some things, and I begin to walk in those things, and all of a sudden, you get a little bit more insight. Oh, you learn something new about the Lord and about yourself. And you find it goes a little deeper, and there's more work to do. As you step into that, and I'm feeling pretty comfortable there, and all of a sudden you realize, oh, there's more. Aren't you glad that you don't get that, that complete view of yourself all at once? Wouldn't that be overwhelming, how truly miserable we really are? Little glimpses along the way that we can continue to walk in the light, and as we respond to that light, we get further light. Jesus didn't do, do, dump the whole truck on that woman that day, but there was an expectation, having been delivered out of the condemnation for her adultery, that she should go and sin no more, she should go and commit adultery no longer. There's an initial response that comes out of our faith that we step into in obedience. Okay? Because I believe I obey. And there's James. Faith works. Right? Okay. And do you know what? In the midst of obeying, I get further understanding. And if I step back from what I already know, if I look at that and see it clearly and say, no, God, I'm not going to do that. I walk away. I'm walking away from the light that I have. And guess what? As I walk away from the light, I, it doesn't get lighter. It doesn't get brighter. As I walk away from the light, I don't get more light. But as I step into the light that I have that God has given me, guess what? I get more light. You see the progression. In our faith, goodness or virtue or doing what's right, and in that doing what's right, I get a clearer knowledge of God. The word knowledge here is especially knowledge of God. It's more light. So now that further light is going to have further implications. It's in, further into the light of knowing God. Also, things about me are revealed in that light. And that call for more self-control. That call for more decisions to be made. More act of my volition. And that, but as I exercise that choice of self-control, I am going to deny this and I'm going to pursue that day by day by day. That leads into longer-term persevering. The word is remaining under, abiding under, and it was often used in the the word self-control, by the way, I should throw at you. The word self-control was especially used in the area of sexual temptation. Okay? One of the strongest temptations uh, that, that, that humanity faces. Those, the, those temptations that are rooted in, 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 in our humanity, in the fallen flesh that wants to serve itself, and yet to, to draw the line there. And he's writing this in a godless age where immorality was rampant. And that's described in chapter 2, right? And so exercise self-control there. And as you exercise self-control there, that's going to allow you to remain under. Remain under what? The pressures of a godless age that presses in on you, just like the, the, the godlessness of Sodom pressed in on Lot that you will abide under. You'll continue in a walk, in a relationship, in fellowship with God in the midst of these influences that would press on you and try to destroy your faith. People would try to mislead you, try to entice you, and yet by exercising self-control, you know, one, of the, one of the benefits of Christian fasting, the practice of the spiritual discipline of fasting, this is not a diet plan, folks. That's, that's a side benefit. And it's not a health plan. 
Although fasting has been proven, a periodic fasting, a fast, a reasonable fast here and there along the way is proven also to have health benefits. But that's not why we fast. We fast to practice denial of ourselves because that exercise of self-control strengthens the soul and strengthens us to endure over the longer term. And that enduring over the longer term leads to godliness. That in the midst of the press of the culture around, I continue in the path of faithfulness that God has laid out to me, that I have exercised self-control day by day in pursuing over the longer term. That develops into a habit of godliness. Now, the word godliness here is a God-centeredness. It's a focus on God. If godlessness is living as if God did not exist... Godliness is living with my eyes upon God. That I make sense out of the world by looking not first at the world and circumstances and what seems right there, but I look first at God and I understand everything else in relation to what I see and know about God. So that persevering in the midst of the press of the culture leads to godliness, a being centered on God in the midst of everything else. That leads to brotherly kindness. That leads to the doing good things, the caring of others, the giving myself away for the sake of others, the, the serving people around me. And this is an important order. It, it's important that our serving of others around us is not done merely with a view of seeing the needs around you. Jesus said... The poor you'll have with you always, for instance. Does that mean that we shouldn't care about the poor? No. But if, we, if caring about the poor becomes our focus, we will wear ourselves out, burn ourselves out, we'll lose sight of the gospel, we'll lay that aside because the pressing needs of the poor and their poverty and their hunger and their physical needs will overwhelm. But if eyes focused on, on God... From there, I consider others. From my eyes focused on God, I consider others. What that will do, that will keep my, that will keep my kindness toward others from being manipulative, trying to get something out of them in return. It will keep my kindness toward others of being done so that I will simply feel better about myself. It will keep my kindness toward others from merely being good, do, good deeds that make people think well of us that, but do nothing concerning the kingdom of Christ. If my eyes are on God and, and, and from there flows my kindness, it'll be kindness in reflection of Jesus. It'll be kindness that wants more than anything else to, to, to glorify him and show him to others, to tell of him to others because of who he is and where my eyes are. And out of that comes that highest love, comes that highest uh, characteristic, that highest quality of love, which is the, the willing giving myself away for the highest good of others, modeled, of course, in our Lord himself. It, it begins one step at a time. It's, 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 it's based upon our faith in Christ, and from there, what will I do with what I know? Will I, because I believe, take a next step in obedience? I'll do something that I know God tells me, and I don't even have to search the Bible to find out what that thing is. Believing in Christ, I already know. I already know something that's wrong. I already know something that's sin in response to the love of God. And I will choose good there. And as I choose good there, I'll know Him more. And as I know Him more, I can, that strengthens, knowing Him strengthens my self-control. You see, it's not about me. It's about Him. And because I know Him, I want to. 
my life, something I've asked, some people have asked me lately how you can pray for me, and, and, and I've described this self-control leading to perseverance in a particular area and project that I'm working on, that I can easily become side, I can easily be convinced myself that I'm entitled to rest now. I don't need to work on that. I don't need to make the decision and to make every effort to work on this thing now, which is something I'm, I should do, because it's been a hard day. I need to rest. The couch is calling. And at that moment, I need to exercise self-control to, as Paul said, buffet my body, make it my slave so that I can choose something better than the couch, which in this project is a chair in the study. And then I'll continue that over a longer term because this project is at least a year and a half long project. And yet I will not make it in a year and a half if I don't make it day by day. You see the progression. I don't know what your next step is. I don't know what it is that's set before you. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. If these qualities are yours, verse 8, if you will step into those next steps, if you will step into that wherever you are there, and you will in your knowledge add self-control, or in your self-control let that grow into a longer-term course of habit, if you, will, if you will add in the next, if these qualities are yours and increasing, growing, you're adding to them, making every effort, if these are qualities are, are yours, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. To put that positively, you will be effective. You will be fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a miserable thing to have Christians who are knowing Jesus but ineffective and unfruitful in that knowledge of Christ. You say, I want to be effective. I want to be used by my Lord. I want to bear fruit that will last. And Peter tells us how to take the next step. Whoever lacks these qualities, not taking the next steps, is nearsighted. I'm nearsighted. I take my glasses off. I can see, I see people back there, but I, I, I can't see your expressions. I can't see that, that um, uh, contemptual scowl that you have on your face. I can't see that sneer. He really believes this stuff. I, I can't see if your eyes are open or closed. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You see, so what am I going to do? Every, so, I, I leave my glasses around a lot. I don't like to wear them because I only need them for far away or at night. I don't need them up close, and they, they bug me the rest of the time. So I'm always taking them off and leaving. But have you noticed? I almost always have them. I can't think of a time I don't have them on Sunday morning. Because I want, I want to see you hiding in the back there. I want to see you. And so I'm intentional about that. I don't want to be short-sighted. And neither do you. You don't want to miss something important. You don't want to miss something important about the people around you. And we will be used by God for the people around us if we are intentional about these qualities that, are, that we're called to, these qualities that are inside our faith, these qualities that are the next step inside our faith, that God would have us add in and step into one by one by one in a way that shows his glory to the people round about us. There may be something particular about somewhere in that list. I, I, I would love it if in our praying for one another this week, 
uh, I and other leaders, of as we're able to pray for you by things that you put on those communication cards, I would love it if you just chose one of those qualities and put that on the list and said, pray for me here. And this is not a scorecard of how far you are advanced. In fact, I suspect you'll circle around this list repeatedly in your walk with the Lord. But I would love it if we just took some intentionality. If this takes intentionality, I would love it if we took some intentionality. And on that white card, just said, pray for me here. This is my next step, even for this week. Let's pray. Father, would you guide us? Lord, as we seek to walk with you, as we seek to be fruitful for you, to effective for you, as we, as we see, Father, seek also, Father, for you to, by your grace, to, to protect us in this present evil age. Not to push for, for, for social reformation of the society around about us, but, Father, to press into transformation that you would do within us. And that, that, that transformation would then become contagious by faith and your glory into the lives of others as well. Lord, that, that we might even see a radical change, even in the course of our culture, but that done not by the efforts of human flesh, but that would be done by the working of your Spirit, one life to another. Oh Lord, would you start that with our lives? Would you start that with my life? in this next step. Father, we give ourselves to you, even as we participate in this morning's offering. Lord, may what we give be merely some substance, something concrete given to the fact that we give ourselves to you. Father, if we add something on that white card that this is my next step, Lord, would you, even in the accountability of other brothers or sisters praying for us, that would, you, would you strengthen us by your Spirit to step into that next step? Would you use this, Father, use your word and your truth to do your work in us? We ask it in Jesus' name.